Welcome back to our third episode of Category Insight. Here we jump into the -the over-the-counter category to help you feel more confident recommending products and recognising conditions. This month, we're asking, what do women want from their healthcare providers? And we have two wonderful guests joining us to discuss menstruation and the menopause. This month, I'm also extremely excited to introduce you to Millie Browning, who will be covering our special guest features. So make sure you stick around to hear from Millie and Kamal George, co-founder of the Female Pharmacy Leaders Network, at the end of the podcast. As you can tell, we have a very exciting lineup, so let's get to it. First up joining me today is Terry Harris, MSRH Education Manager at charity Bloody Good Period, who deliver menstrual supplies to those in need, provide reproductive education, fight stigma and shame, and amplify the demand for fair treatment of all those who menstruate. Hi Terry, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing great. The sunshine is a, is a great relief. <laughs> Absolutely. Could you tell me a bit about you and maybe the your charity's mission? Yeah, amazing. So um, I'm the Menstrual Sexual Reproductive Health Education Manager. That's why we shorten it to MSRH because it's quite long. Um, and I work for an organization called Bloody Good Period, who you introduced perfectly there. But we fight for menstrual equity, which is the idea that nobody should be disadvantaged um, because they have a period. So in my role as education manager, I work with medical professionals um, from across varying fields, whether that be um, doctors, um, OBS and guidance. Um, midwives, everyone basically who has a medical background to um, provide education sessions on menstrual, sexual and reproductive health to refugees and asylum seekers here in England and also in Wales. Um, that's just one part of what we do. The other part is obviously product provision. So we work with community organizations on the ground to provide period products to anyone who's in who needs them, um, really. And the third thing we do is try to normalize periods. So we know that menstrual equity often doesn't exist or is difficult to um, achieve because there is... Um, such a a stigma and taboo around periods and menstruation and so as part of our work um, we have programs like Bloody Good Employers um, which work to normalise conversations around periods and make them just a bigger part of everyday life. Wow that's awesome I've been so excited to speak to you and to kind of contribute to normalizing conversations about menstruation um can you start by um giving us a brief overview of like what the menstrual cycle is Absolutely. Um, And I think that this is such an important question because of the stigma and taboo. Often people think that the menstrual cycle is just the period. So the part that we bleed, but in fact, the period is just the first phase of the menstrual cycle. And the menstrual cycle is actually made up of four stages. Um, And those four stages can kind of be split into two two cycles. Um, So 
these cycles are the brain, the ovary and the uterus all working together um, and communicating through hormones and chemical signals that are being sent all around the body. So um, the period, which is kind of the part that everybody knows, is the first day of your menstrual cycle. Um, and your menstrual cycle will end when um, your period starts again. So for many people, this is around 28 days. That's the kind of average, but it can be anywhere between 21 and 38 days so your menstrual cycle is basically the day of your first period until you start your period again um, and the kind of length of your period how heavy it can be all of these things that are attached to your period can um, change over time and like that so can your cycle so the length of your cycle may change between puberty, menopause, after pregnancy. Um, and yeah, it's kind of controls everything in your body. So as I said at the beginning, um, your menstrual cycle is the brain and the ovaries communicating through hormones. And these hormones have a huge impact on our body um, from everything from the dryness of our skin to um, vaginal discharge um, to hair growth. All of these things are connected to the menstrual cycle. And I think it's important to know that, as I said, the menstrual cycle is split into these four phases. And we can kind of think of these four phases in two parts. The first part of the cycle um, is when the period starts. And it's all about preparing the egg to be released from the ovary and building the lining of the uterus so that if a person becomes pregnant, that egg can be nice and cushioned and be um, kept safe in the uterus. And then uh, roughly um, two weeks after that, um, the second part of the cycle prepares. So this is phase um, three and four. And this is all about the body preparing um, to accept a fertilized egg if a person becomes pregnant or to release that egg um, and start the next cycle. So it's a really um, <laughs> it's a really varied process and it's quite large but I think the most important thing to know is that it's not just a period but four phases. <laughs> yeah definitely and so that's kind of like the um, standard kind of what happens um, throughout a menstrual cycle but what are maybe some of the red flags that can appear that pharmacy teams could look out for that something might be um, abnormal with a period that needs um, to be checked out further? Mm. Something I always say is that if your period or menstrual cycle is having an impact on your everyday life, then that's a red flag and should be something that you talk to um, a medical professional about. And what I mean about that is we're often told that period pain is normal. And so a lot of people will suffer in silence with excruciating period pain. So I think, yeah, a red flag is that... Um, it's having an impact on your everyday life. So if you're having period pain that's so excruciating that it's leaving you feeling nauseous, fatigued, perhaps you can't leave the house because of it, then that's definitely a red flag. Um, another thing is around the heaviness of your period. So everybody is completely different. Um, and so is everybody's menstrual cycle and period. And some people will be um, lucky to have a very light 
menstrual flow, but others may not. However, if you're having to change your period products once every hour, once every two hours, and you know, if you're doing that, that's going to have an impact on your finances, but maybe also on your self-esteem and self-consciousness. If you're worried about leaking and um, maybe that has an impact on you leaving the house, then I definitely think that's also something to talk to um, a medical professional about. So yeah, another red flag there is heavy period flow. And um, the third is around like PMS, so premenstrual syndrome. And this is often kind of a joke um, that we hear within society around people PMSing. But premenstrual syndrome is not just about mood swings and anger, it's so much more. Um, and it's all of the kind of symptoms that happen in the week preceding your period. And um, that might be emotional changes, but it could be also um, constipation or breast tenderness, um, weight changes, bloating. So all of those things, if they're having an impact on your mental well-being or on your ability to just live your everyday life, then also that's a, another red flag. I think um, something that I would advise pharmacy teams is to talk to patients around knowing what is normal for them um I think that's really key because as I said everybody is different so what might seem like a really heavy period to one person might seem quite light to another um but yeah I think those three red flags around period pain period flow and PMS and making sure that people aren't suffering in silence yeah, thank you. I think that's so, so important to, to know and have a understanding of kind of what's normal for you. Um, mm. Absolutely. Um, and, and recently, the contraceptive pill um, kind of became available to buy over the counter. And um, I know that some people use this to help manage um, their periods. Could you maybe explain a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's kind of three main reasons why um, the contraceptive pill might be um, prescribed to somebody with um, period or menstrual health issues. The first kind of one is around irregular periods. So um, a doctor may prescribe um, the contraceptive pill to treat irregular periods. And it's really important to note that when you take the contraceptive pill, it's you you don't really have a natural period um it's a withdrawal bleed so it's not the same as having um a, a classic period but what the um hormonal pill can do is it can release and um, the right amount of hormones into your bloodstream and balance your hormones and this can kind of create a hormonal contraceptive cycle within the body and that is really helpful to people who have irregular periods because it can kind of give a regularity to your menstrual cycle and make um, your periods much more predictable so that's one great and helpful um way that the contraceptive pill can be used for menstrual health. The second um, is around painful periods. And this, um, I think, is one of the most common reasons that the um, contraceptive pill is prescribed. Um, and basically, when you experience period pains, that is the contracting of the uterus. And that contracting of the uterus happens because of prostaglandins. Um, and by 
taking the contraceptive pill, um, it actually decreases the amount of these prostaglandins. And that means that the contractions of the uterus are weaker um, and therefore it can kind of provide relief um, around menstrual cramping. Um, so that's been really helpful um, for many people <laughs> over the past many years. Um, and the final one, which I think a lot of teenagers will be prescribed the contraceptive pill, although um, adults as well, I'm sure, but is around skin. So often, um, often a high level of estrogen can cause um, acne and a lot of birth control pills um, can kind of balance that because they contain both estrogen and progesterone. Um, progestin and those can be um, used to treat acne um, and also kind of um, like yeah um, hair growth in unusual places or unwanted places and also for hair loss as well so I think yeah a lot of um, young people will know um, or have been prescribed birth control for um, skin and acne and it, it is a very good um, solution for that different combinations of the pill will work for different people. There's many, many types of contraceptive pill and they will all work for different people in different ways because as I said, no two menstrual cycles are the same. So I think it's really important that even though you can buy the contraceptive pill over the counter, if you're using it to manage period symptoms, it might be best to talk to a medical professional before taking it so that they can prescribe you the pill um, or the best kind of combination of treatments that meets your specific needs and situation. Yeah, absolutely. And and to further that, um, e each um, person that menstruates is obviously so different. And I think it's really good for people to have access to and be aware of all the kind of sanitary products that are available and mm -hmm. kind of suit them. And what, what should pharmacy teams be, what products should pharmacy teams be aware of and be kind of stocking in the pharmacy? Um, I think this is such a great question because they're, especially in the past five years, there's so many different types of products out there. Um, I think something to be aware of as a pharmacy team is to really promote a kind of no judgment, like choice-based approach. So, um, you know, if young people come in asking um, for period products or want a little bit of a discussion around it, not presuming that they um, shouldn't use internal products like, um, like tampons and menstrual cups. Um, but there is so much choice now. I think a lot of people um, are looking for more eco-friendly options. So those might range from kind of organic um, tampons and pads, um, tampons that don't use plastic applicators, but use cardboard ones, all the way to kind of the reusable products. So menstrual cups, which are and silicone cups that are very flexible that are inserted into the body um, and removed at, um, after between six to 12 hours it depends on the brand um, and then they can be rinsed and reused during each period um, they just need to be sterilized at the end of, of each um, period and then there's also um, options such as reusable pants and reusable pads which are 
um, fabric versions of, of the classic pad um, or just a pair of um, knickers or pants that have special materials in the inside for absorbing absorbing blood. So I think um, to be aware of especially menstrual cups and the reusable products and how they work. And I know that when you purchase um, products, there's definitely a lot of information on, on those companies' websites about how to use them. So I would, yeah, I would ask pharmacy teams to be aware of these kind of new products. And if you're stocking them to just knowledge up a little bit and be able to answer any questions on those. The second thing I would really like pharmacy teams to be aware of is toxic shock syndrome. So this is, um, is something that happens when kind of bacteria from the outside of the body gets um, in the inside of the body. And this often happens with most commonly tampons. That's where we most um, likely have heard this term before. Um, but it can and has been shown to happen with menstrual cups as well. So I think pharmacy teams need to be aware of the um, of the symptoms of toxic shock syndrome and to know that if um, somebody comes in demonstrating kind of these symptoms and they're using a tampon or a menstrual cup to ask them to remove that immediately um, and and um, kind of send them for medical medical support. Um, but yeah, being aware of that if you're stocking tampons and being able to have conversations around that as well, I think is really, really important. And um, if someone did come into the pharmacy showing um, such symptoms, what 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 do they look like? Um, so for toxic shock syndrome, there's usually like a high fever, um, sometimes nausea, um, and it and vomiting as well. So I think if anyone comes in who is menstruating and has a tampon in um, and is experiencing high fever and nausea, it could not be toxic shock syndrome, but um, just to be aware that those are some of the symptoms and to get them to remove that internal product straight away. That's great, thank you so much. And finally, Terry, where can pharmacy teams um, signpost people to for further support? So really, really good question. Um, so I think the first thing I want to talk about is free period products. So since September last year, um, there are now free period products within schools. So if somebody um, who's under 18 comes in and is looking to either purchase period products um, or is asking where they can get free period products, I think really importantly to signpost them to school and let them know that they can get a range of products, including some of those reusable ones that I've spoken about um, in their school. Um, I think for older people who might need free access to period products, signposting to organisations like Tricky Period um, and also food banks as well, those two organisations um, are best placed to provide free period products. Obviously, we provide free period products at Bloody Good Period, but we provide these through local community organisations. So if you're looking to signpost patients, then definitely talking, um, signposting to food banks or organisations like Tricky Period. 
There is also an amazing organization called Beauty Bank that I would refer anyone to who's looking for hygiene products um, such as soap or any washes. Um, that's just a great space for anybody in need for those products who can't afford them. Um, and I just want to mention some really great resources that are there online. So I know that pharmacy teams are going to be very, very busy um, and might not have the, the time or the capacity to answer all of the questions on periods that people might have. So I would um, ask them to signpost to um, online resources like Hello Clue, which is a period tracking app um, that allows people to monitor their symptoms um, and also the length of their period and lots of other things around the menstrual cycle. Um, but through that app, they also offer an encyclopedia of menstrual health knowledge, and it has um, lots of frequently asked questions and answers to those questions as well that are really, really useful for the general public to kind of understand more about periods and um, menstrual matters as well which has been set up by an amazing person called Dr Sally King and I would really recommend pharmacy teams using that as a kind of knowledge base um, to either improve their own knowledge or signpost people to this kind of takes a more a medical approach and looks at symptoms um, around the menstrual cycle and, and how best to support people experiencing those. Um, and also an amazing organisation called London in Your Language, which has free translated um, sexual and reproductive health videos and information on its website and YouTube channel. This is especially important for people whose first language is in English. And I really, really promote this website because I think it's amazing at signposting people to um, NHS services here in, in the UK um, and also making it really, really accessible and easy for those people to use. The final shout out I'm going to give is to our Bloody Good Employers Programme, which I think I touched on at the beginning. But if as a pharmacy team, this has kind of um, excited you about learning more about menstrual health or periods, our Bloody Good Employers Programme is a way for you to normalise menstrual health um, conversations within your teams. It's a great support um, we provide three sessions and um, further support during this time all around um, making your workspace more period positive and more inclusive for those who menstruate. So I would really recommend taking a look at our Bloody Good Employers Programme as well. Wow, thank you so much, Terry. You've given us absolutely loads there. And it's, it's honestly so uplifting to hear that there are so many points of to access information but also um, products themselves because I just think um, especially people in the UK still think that access to physical sanitary products isn't a problem but it, it, it really is and um, period poverty is a real thing so thank you so much for mentioning mm -hmm. that and thank you so much for your time it's been absolutely wonderful to speak to you um, so thank you. Thank you. Um, great to speak to you too. And I, I hope we've managed to support some pharmacy teams out there. Now we are moving on from menstruation to, for what for most women comes next, which is the menopause. Approximately 13 million women in the UK are either peri or postmenopausal. 
So to, to discuss how pharmacy teams can provide support, I'd like to welcome Diane Danzebrink, founder of Menopause Support, which is an organization that provides private support via telephone and video consultation, bespoke menopause training days, as well as being home to the national hashtag Make Menopause Matter campaign. Hi, Diane. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hi, Monica. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Could you maybe tell um, us a little bit about you and the work that you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so as you said, um, I'm the founder of menopausesupport.co.uk and the Make Menopause Matter campaign. And how I, I suppose, come to do what I do um, is both a personal and a professional interest. So back uh, in 2012, I had to have a total hysterectomy, which put me into surgical menopause. Um, unfortunately, prior to or post my surgery, I wasn't given any information about all the potential symptoms of menopause or of going into a surgical menopause, which is a sort of drastic loss of estrogen at the time of surgery. Um, and so consequently for me, I left hospital thinking that I might have some hot flushes and I knew that I wouldn't have any more periods, but I didn't know any more than that. Um, unfortunately, after about three months, um, I was hit very hard by the psychological symptoms of menopause, which I had no idea were related. Um, so crushing anxiety, low mood, um, very emotional, lots of crying, um, huge loss of confidence, uh, panic attacks, not wanting to leave the house, um, having to stop work, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt like I was going mad, um, which was not a very nice place to be. Um, very, very long story short, um, that resulted in me coming to a very dark place in my life where I came very close to taking my life. Um, at that point, my husband, who had been trying to persuade me to go and see my GP for many, many weeks, um, took over and he, in fact, booked an appointment with the GP and I went along with him that evening to see her. And she was the first medical health professional to explain to me about loss of oestrogen um, and how that can affect us, not just physically, but also cognitively and psychologically. Um, she explained to me how important it was for somebody of my age. So I was 45 at the time to have hormone replacement therapy. Um, I told her about all my fears about hormone replacement therapy, all the things that I'd read and heard in the media um, in the years before. She reassured me that hormone therapy was a very different prospect to what it had been in the past, talked to me about all the benefits and risks. And I essentially started transdermal estrogen patches that day. Um, that put me into a position where after about a week, the sort of dark, scary world that I'd been living in 
felt as though there was a chink of light and it felt as though things weren't maybe so hopeless after all. Um, it took many months, um, in fact, two years altogether for me to really feel 100% sort of back to who I was. Um, but in that time, I, my sort of, my relief at having the right help and support turned to frustration and anger, um, partly at what I'd nearly done, but also I'd started to research to see if I was just really unlucky or if other people were struggling. And it turned out that there were thousands of women on social media talking about their own struggles. Um, and I just couldn't understand how it could be that as 51% of the population with everybody going to experience menopause, how there was so little understanding and probably even less support. And I decided that I would ensure that I did something to change that. Um, so, as I say, that's really sort of what led to me starting Menopause Support, which initially started as me just counselling women one to one um, and trying to share as much information and resources as I could via that platform. I then started a Facebook group called the Menopause Support Network, which now supports just under 28,000 women. Um, and then in October 2018, launched the National Make Menopause Matter campaign in Westminster. The campaign has three aims. The first is to have mandatory menopause training for all our GPs and medical students. The second is to have better menopause guidance and support in every workplace. And the third is to have menopause included in the RSE curriculum in schools. And I'm delighted to say that that came into being in England in September 2020. So that has been achieved, but obviously we want to see that for the rest of the UK. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of that's how I come to be talking to you. Um, and that's a sort of a, a rough idea of what I do. Wow, thank you so, so much. And especially for sharing your personal experience um, with us like that. This is exactly why kind of we are doing this podcast is to provide more information and show how um, pharmacies can provide support that is desperately needed um, to their community. So thank you so much. Um, could you uh, maybe start by just giving us a very brief overview of what the menopause is? Yeah, of course. So essentially, the menopause is the time in a woman's life when the ovarian function is changing. So essentially, the, um, the store of eggs in the ovaries is running out. And consequently, that means that there is going to be a change in hormone levels, um, mainly to estrogen and progesterone and to an extent to testosterone. But it's estrogen and progesterone that is focused on initially. Um, as those hormone levels change, because there are estrogen receptors all over the body, that means that for some people, they will experience symptoms. 
for probably a minority, they will go through the perimenopausal into the postmenopausal phase with very few symptoms. All they will notice is that at some point periods will end. So for the vast majority, um, periods will stop in the early 50s, between 51 and 52. Once you've had no periods for 12 months, that's called postmenopause. So that's the sort of natural menopause transition. Um, it could also be that you're somebody who goes into a surgical menopause. So you have both of your ovaries removed. That's called a bilateral oophrectomy. Um, you could go into what's called an induced menopause or a medical menopause, which is where ovarian function is suppressed. Um, for a medical reason. So perhaps you have severe endometriosis or perhaps you suffer from premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, it could happen because you're having treatment perhaps for a form of cancer and the chemotherapy medication is having an effect on your ovarian function. And there is a proportion of women under the age of 40 who will experience what's called POI or premature ovarian insufficiency. So that's when ovarian function changes quite dramatically before the natural age of menopause. So approximately, we know that approximately one in a hundred under the age of 40 will experience POI, one in a thousand under 30, and in fact, one in 10,000 under 20. So the youngest woman that I've counseled personally is 17. The youngest female that we're aware of who has experienced POI is 12. So very rare in those cases, but one in a hundred under 40, not so rare. And in all of those situations, as I say, approximately one in four will have very few symptoms. Three in four do have symptoms and one in four will describe those symptoms as debilitating. So severely affecting quality of life in some way, shape or form. And the average length of perimenopause. So that's from your first symptom all the way through to sort of menopause, which is that 12 months and one day without a period, on average is around four to eight years. And most women will be perimenopausal by the time they're 45. And symptoms typically start in the early 40s. Um, and as I said, symptoms can be varied. Uh, they really break down into three categories. We have physical, cognitive and psychological. So cognitive symptoms, things like changes to memory and concentration, psychological symptoms, things like anxiety, low mood, mood swings, irritability, perhaps more tearful, loss of confidence. And then physical symptoms, the ones that everybody knows about are the hot flushes and night sweats, but also things like heart palpitations, joint or muscle pain, changes to periods, um, perhaps dry, itchy skin, dry eyes, and then the symptoms that absolutely nobody really wants to talk about, which are the intimate symptoms or which we call genitourinary symptoms. So things like urinary frequency, urgency, increased urinary tract infections, or the vulval and vaginal symptoms. So dryness, soreness, irritation, etc. Many, unfortunately, suffer with those and go on and suffer in silence. Um, we know that from studies that approximately 70% of women 
as they go into their postmenopause will experience those genitourinary symptoms and tragically only around 7% will ever seek any treatment for them. And what what treatment is there available and what kind of self-care advice can pharmacy teams to mm. give to those go, experiencing these symptoms? Yeah, so as far as as far as treatments are concerned, um, we have nice guidance, which is very clear that first line treatment for menopause symptoms is hormone replacement therapy, which many, many pharmacists um, will be very familiar with prescribing to um, to women. Um, so hormone replacement therapy comes in many different forms, um, but also there are the local estrogens. So local estrogens are things like creams, pessaries, gels, and they're used topically um, on the vulva, the vagina, etc., to help to remedy those genitourinary symptoms. Um, there are other medications, again, that pharmacists will be um, aware of prescribing occasionally that GPs can prescribe. Um, they're generally things that are given to women who either don't want hormone replacement therapy or for a medical reason can't have it. Um, so there is a range of medications that doctors can prescribe. But then as far as how pharmacists can help I think one of the I think one of the key things is there is still such a lack of information out there of good factual evidence based information out there about menopause the sort of the um transition of menopause so a lot of people have never heard the word perimenopause so perimenopause menopause postmenopause understanding that it's not just hot flushes and it doesn't just happen to women in their 50s very many women in their 40s will it be experiencing those perimenopausal symptoms but also perhaps for those who choose not to go the medication route pharmacists can certainly be helpful in sharing as i say factual evidence-based information about what potential alternatives people could think about so there is an absolute plethora of menopause supplements and that can be a bit of a minefield if you're a woman who's coming to that with absolutely no knowledge so I think certainly from the pharmacist's point of view being you know sort of being a medical professional and being able to be that sort of perhaps be the information that the woman might not be able to get elsewhere maybe signposting maybe suggesting helping help and helping people to understand what their potential options are I think they can all be really helpful and then particularly around those genitourinary symptoms you know for many people they will turn to their local pharmacy for something to help with those symptoms um, now, that could be perhaps uh, a lubricant that could be a vaginal moisturizer. Um, and I think, you know, sort of we know that there are some of those products um, are preferred as far as organizations like the British Menopause Society are concerned because of ingredients. Um, so I think certainly for pharmacies, you know, stocking those preferred items 
and being able to have that conversation privately, I would imagine, because of the, the subject matter, um, but being able to have that conversation with somebody about whether or not they're using HRT or local estrogen, perhaps for those genitourinary symptoms, they can also perhaps be using alongside that one of the, you know, sort of one of the vaginal preparations, as I say, whether that's a lubricant or whether that's a moisturiser, I think that can also be really helpful. It's having somebody to turn to that you recognise is going to give you factual information. Yeah, absolutely. And on that point, where can pharmacy teams kind of signpost women to for further support, especially with maybe their mental health at this Mm. time? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, sort of we're we're all very well aware that the waiting lists for mental health support, um, which is sort of prescribed by GPs, unfortunately, in many parts of the country, those waiting lists are very long. And I think one of the things that I have sort of heard so many times over the past few years from those who are struggling with their mental health is just having somebody to talk to makes an enormous difference for them. So I think, you know, sort of as far as information is concerned, I think organisations like the British Menopause Society, Women's Health Concern, which is um, the patient arm of the British Menopause Society, has lots of really useful information. Um, organisations like ourselves, menopause support. But then if we're looking specifically at mental health, I think it's always worth signposting, you know, sort of in an emergency situation to organisations like Samaritans or Mind, but also making people aware that in many cases they can self-refer to the mental health teams in their own area. Um, But very often with menopause and mental health, it's about being heard. And that might not necessarily be being heard face to face. That could be as being part of a community. So a community like ours, um, you know, very often we will have and there are lots of them now online. um, Very often just being able to have that space where somebody can download what it is that they're thinking what it is that's going on for them, what they're struggling with, and then to get some sort of positive affirmation, to be recognised, to be heard, and to know that they're not alone. If we're talking about those women who are going through a very early menopause, there is a fabulous charity called the Daisy Network, which supports women in premature ovarian insufficiency, and they have peer support, So that's also very useful. Um, So there are, you know, sort of there are options out there for being able to signpost to. Um, You know, one of the things that I would love to see is I would love to see a national menopause information campaign funded by the government. And I would very much like to see pharmacies very involved in that with having some kind of booklet of information that women can pick up when they go into their pharmacy because they might not even be thinking about menopause they might be going in for something else they might be going in for medication or to buy something off of the shelf but actually to have that there because 
we still we know that many GP practices don't have any information booklets about menopause. So actually being able to have them out in the community amongst our community pharmacies, I think that would be hugely helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Diane. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. My pleasure. Thank you so much to Terry and Diane for improving our understanding of how pharmacy teams can support menstruation and the menopause in the pharmacy. Next, we hear from Millie and Kamal. Joining me today is Kamal George. Kamal is a pharmacist and certified health and wellbeing coach, also known as the holistic pharmacist. Most recently, Kamal, alongside former pharmacist, now self-leadership, trainer, speaker and certified professional coach Harpreet Chana and independent community pharmacy contractor and ROE judge Rina Barai, founded the Female Pharmacy Leaders Network, which has just celebrated its one year anniversary. The network is made up of voluntary pharmacy professionals from across the sector who have come together to help find, develop and practice everyday courage amongst female pharmacy professionals so that they can become the next healthcare leaders. Hi Kamal, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Thank you for having me Millie. Yes, I'm really well, thank you. Fantastic. And just to get started, could you tell me a little bit about you and your career so far? Yeah, sure. (laughs) So, um... I am a pharmacy business strategist and coach. I have been helping pharmacy professionals, I suppose, most of my career, I would say. Um, I knew from a very early stage in my career that I wanted to do something for pharmacy rather than working in pharmacy. And that took me on a very different career path, I suppose. Um, Started off as a hospital pharmacist many, many years ago. um, And then fairly quickly moved into community pharmacy and most of my career I've spent at national level so both at the MPA and at PSNC and I was the first and even though it feels really weird saying this I was actually the first Asian female pharmacist to hold a head of department position at um, the pharmaceutical services negotiating committee oh wow (laughs) which at the time I wasn't really aware of. <laughs> um, I just kind of went and did my role there as, as, as head of dispensing and supply and didn't really think much of it. Um, and it wasn't until Rena approached me <laughs> last year to say, um, you know, I would really like to create a network that supports um, females getting into leadership positions in the profession would you like to join me on that journey that um, I really kind of realized that's what had happened in my career. So, so yeah, so that's, I guess that's me in a, in a very um, quick nutshell. (laughs) That's great. Thank you. Um, And so was that how the idea for female, female pharmacy leaders network came about? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So um, Rena had had approached me and said, um, and she knew we'd we'd known of each other, but we'd not really worked together. Um, And um, she had approached me and said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm obviously the first Asian female pharmacist to help hold a position both on the NPA board and PSNC. And I don't want to be the last. And um, we had a discussion about how we could potentially support 
other pharmacists from particularly from minority backgrounds um you know women of color to to reach those leadership positions and and she had the idea of um doing an event for international women's day so the nhs were doing this this big online event for international women's day last year which was a, an event around everyday courage and she said would you like to come you know co-host a panel discussion with me um and we'll put forward a you know a pitch for um one of the sessions it was an unconference so anybody could put forward their ideas of discussion topics and we did that and we were accepted and um we yeah we we created the the panel discussion we had three incredible pharmacists Sadina Agama Tasse who's obviously now our PS board member and um Helen Kilminster join us um and so myself Rena and Harpreet the three of us came together to to run that panel discussion and we knew that um from having from having created that that panel and you know we would want we'd need to do something uh off the back of it we'd need to create a space for us to come back and continue the conversation that we were going to initiate on that day. And that's really how the Female Pharmacy Leaders Network came about, because we knew that people would want somewhere to talk about how we can support each other to get to leadership positions. And, and yeah, it's kind of it all kind of happened fairly organically, to be honest. <laughs> that's amazing. That's the best way. <laughs> Um, so, and would you say that would be the main aim of the network then to um, promote um, women of colour particularly into um, leadership positions? Yeah, I mean, I was really, I'd never really looked at the numbers for a long time. I'd attended a few women in pharmacy events and, you know, obviously very acutely aware of the fact that the profession is heavily made up of female pharmacists. Um but I wasn't really aware of the full numbers until I actually looked at the data. And, you know, 60% of the profession are female, you know, 45% are, you know, of minority backgrounds, you know, black, Asian, minority, ethnic background. And yet, when you look at leadership, it's not reflected. Um, and I know we've talked about this for a long time, but we felt like we wanted to create a space that would enable us to have some of those really kind of open discussions about the barriers um, that, were, that are preventing us from reaching those positions. And we wanted to create somewhere that, you know, pharmacists, female pharmacists from all backgrounds could come to and leave feeling really inspired and empowered and motivated and supported knowing that they had other pharmacy professionals who were there to support them in whatever decisions they dis they made in their careers. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's really the aim. The aim is to help to, you know, to find, uh, you know, develop and support, you know, female pharmacists into leadership positions. Could you just tell me about a time that you've noticed the effect that the network is having on its members or across the sector? Um, anything that springs to mind? Yeah, I mean, we've been, I have to say, we've been really, really grateful to every single member of the network. Um, we started off after the, the first International Women's Day event that we did. 
we had 40 people register for our first event and it's just steadily grown since then we've got almost 300 people who who are registered as part of the network now and over this over the course of this last year we've been really really amazed at how just having these conversations has led women in the profession to put themselves forward as you know rps board you know for the rps board elections they've put themselves forward for um you know being part of expert committees they are talking about diversity and inclusion in their workplaces they are you know speaking up uh about their own experiences and to be honest that that we couldn't ask for anything more (laughs) to happen from the community you know that's exactly what we want to see and one of the things that we feel really passionately about is sometimes in pharmacy we can feel really isolated and um what we've wanted to do is is and I always go back to this quote that Sadina says because it's re- it really stuck with me from that very first panel discussion that we had had. But she she said that you know when you don't have when you don't feel like you have the courage, you have to borrow other people's courage. And I I like to think that that's what we do in our in our meetups that we we sh- we share our courage so that others can borrow that. And take that back to their workplaces. Yeah, I've been to a couple of the meetups now, and I'd say you definitely, definitely do that. Um, and has the group developed at all? So I know it started out being um, mainly focusing on um, female pharmacists of colour, um, but have you noticed that you know people from other areas of the profession have joined in? So like technicians, support staff, um, or is it still kind of being aimed mainly at pharmacists? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it has grown actually. And, and we've, we've, we've um, changed as a result as well. So, you know, it started off as, as BAME pharmacists, but actually it's pharmacy professionals from across the spectra. You know, we have technicians who join us. We have, um, you know, male colleagues who join us. And that's the amazing thing about it, that now we've been really fortunate that people from across the sector join us at our meetups and and they can be chief pharmacist or they can be you know anyone within the pharmacy profession you know and and that's the really nice thing about it because we we really do believe in collaboration and um you know we can't together we're all pharmacy so you know we need to create spaces where we can we're not isolated in our silos of we're only technicians so we only speak to technicians we're only community pharmacists so we only speak to community pharmacists you know I think it's really important to have this cross-pollination that happens and there's something that really powerful that happens when you can when you hear other people's stories and that's what I get really excited about when we have our meetups because it's an opportunity to hear someone's story and you learn from that. So um, yeah, it's grown. We, you know, we we were called the the BAME, the female BAME pharmacist leaders network. We're now the female pharmacy leaders network. And I think we kept we we purposefully kept female because, you know, we are still underrepresented at you know females are still underrepresented at um, um, you know leadership level, and that's gratefully changing. 
Um, but it's it's wonderful that we get to have male colleagues join us as well. And we do regularly, which is great. Yeah, that's phenomenal to have that support um, from the other side, I guess. Um, and finally, what's next for the network? Do you have anything coming up or in the pipeline? Well, we, we're still holding our monthly meetups. Um, so our next one's going to be at the end of April. And um, we would like to do something in person. So watch this space. <laughs> um, you know, we, we do, we run the network um you know, in our in our spare time, so to speak. So we we try to um, you know we try to create as many interactive um, you know meetups as we can throughout the year. Um, and and to be honest, collaboration. You know, go back to what I was saying earlier about collaboration. I'm really, really keen on collaborating. Really fortunate that we could do that for um, International Women's Day this year with the RPS um and Amen uh over there and, and it was it was a fantastic event and we really enjoyed it. Um and we hope to be able to to run more collaborative events with other networks um this year. So so yeah, lots of fun things in the pipeline. <laughs> Definitely watch this space. <laughs> um well that's great. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see where the network goes next. Um thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me Millie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much to all our guests on the podcast this month. Women's health is obviously an unbelievably broad topic, but I hope we've managed to give you a better understanding of these two specific areas. I hope Kamal's words have also left you feeling inspired and help you to continue to lift up your female colleagues you work alongside in the pharmacy. As always, check out the show notes below to find links to all the amazing resources we have discussed. And why not subscribe to the podcast? You've come this far already. We look forward to chatting again next month, but until then, I'm Monica West and this is Category Insight.